Welcome to The Examining Life, a podcast of the Arts of Liberty Project at the University of Dallas with Dr. Jeffrey Lehman, founder, and Dr. Andrew Seeley, executive director. Join the doctors each week as they draw on decades of devotion to liberal education to help you engage in a life of learning. Welcome back. I'm here with Dr. Andrew Seeley, and uh, I'm Jeff Lehman, Dr. Jeff Lehman, and uh, we're going to be taking a look at one of Plato's dialogue. We took a look at one of Plato's works before, the Apology, in our very first podcast, The Examining Life, and looked at the passage where, where Socrates talks about that. Uh, this time, we're going to take a look at the Mino. And I did say Mino. Uh, purists will say Meno, uh, but I'm I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have stories about that, but uh, <laughs> we get to those another time. Mm -hmm. But the Mino is an important dialogue, and especially in this tradition that we're uh, you know expounding and and and. Uh, commending to others, um, it's often put very early in a curriculum. And um, in the St. John's colleges, it has a, a very early and prime place. At Thomas Aquinas College, it does. And, and often in a study of the liberal art of logic, you find it bearing a, a, mm -hmm. a, an early position as well. And some would go so far as to say that it's an introduction to the, the entire Western tradition of thinking, okay. right? So, uh, but let's see, let's take a look at a, a passage, a significant passage. This is deep in the dialogue. And uh, the dialogue for, for those who haven't read it before is uh, essentially on the topic of what is virtue. At least that's the way it begins. Uh, and they, there's a back and forth and we're picking up largely in the middle of the dialogue. So Andrew, would you read yes. for us? Uh, so this is from uh, number 79E. Um, Socrates, this is Mino talking. Socrates, I certainly used to hear, even before meeting you, that you never do anything else than exist in a state of perplexity yourself and put others in a state of perplexity. And now you seem to me to be bewitching me and drugging, drugging me and simply subduing me with incantations, so that I come to be full of perplexity. And you seem to me, if it is even appropriate to make something of a joke, to be altogether, both in looks and in other respects, like the flat torpedo fish of the sea. For indeed, it always makes anyone who approaches and touches it grow numb. And you seem to me now to have done that very sort of thing to me, making me numb. Thank you. Yeah, this passage is is one that that uh, is is very memorable. It's one of the greatest images in the dialogue, I think, uh, and it's 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 a playful criticism of Socrates, right? He's like a torpedo fish, like a stingray, right? <laughs> that can that can then numb us, and and the way that that Mino says this is is quite funny. You seem to me to be bewitching me and drugging me and simply subduing me with incantations okay. as, as if he has this very strange control over mm -hmm. his Mino and then other interlocutors. Cause Mino is speaking on behalf of others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, Socrates uh, in his reply, there's this image and you're kind of ready for an image in reply and Socrates refuses to make an image in reply to, to Mino. Um, and so he kind of lets it stand, right? He, he responds to the criticism, but he doesn't respond in kind. <laughs> <laughs> what do you notice about this passage? Well, the first thing I notice is I think um, 
many of my students would apply this to me. <laughs> um, over 30 years of leading discussions at uh, Thomas Aquinas College, I have uh, gotten a reputation <laughs> for, um, I guess they, they, they like to call me the master of chaos or something, <laughs> of wanting to yeah. stir up controversies by asking questions and not letting, not, not kind of um, letting my position be known. Um, and uh, uh, I think that partly I started doing that because I liked that as a student. I liked it when tutors and others would ask me questions and ask us questions. And we, we got into the debate and we were so much more focused on what we thought and what we were, what our peers were saying to us, and what the text was saying to us, than we were on somebody uh, whose guidance we were, mm -hmm. we were feeling we had to have. Um, that 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 personal, the deep personal character of the intellectual activity that I was enjoying was something I loved myself, and so I want to share with my students. Um, but also, I think it it's um, it's. Um, recognizing what I think all great teachers recognize, which is, uh, or shows that Socrates does, which is that you have to look within yourself to see the truth of anything that's said. Um, you can believe and accept on trust in many things we do, and it's right that we do, but to, to see the truth for yourself, you're going to have to look inside. And so Socrates is just, um, has, is just through questions turning Mino into himself and then Mino seeing, I have no interior resources here. Mm, yes, yes. <laughs> or I feel like I don't. Right. Uh, Socrates is just revealing to Mino the state of his interior soul and he's not doing anything to him except making that aware, aware, aware of it. Yeah, that's right. He resorts to name calling, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're a torpedo fish. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, but to build on that, I, I, I was thinking as, as we're talking this through and in, in light of this passage, isn't it a perennial a temptation, a danger for excellent teachers uh, to become precisely the one who just dispenses the answers, right? And and I, I just so we're clear, <clears throat> there is a time and a place for an excellent lecture, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, often what we do is we shortcut the possibility of learning precisely by saying too much too soon mm -hmm. and not letting the students. Uh, grapple with ideas, with questions, mm -hmm. uh, wrestle with things that uh, we may know full well are, are wrong, uh, but but we need to go through that route. That yeah. needs to be a part of the process. Otherwise, if someone just simply says, no, that's not the right answer, this is it. Yeah. There's a hole in, in your own understanding at that mm -hmm. point, it seems to me. Yeah, what I've uh, found, I think it's, it's uh, it's wonderful when I can do it and when uh, others I've, I've uh, other lectures I've attended, um, say just the right words and and say it in just the right way. Uh, and while you're listening, your your mind is and in your imagination are following it and and kind of seeing the light. Mm -hmm. But then when you if you start to talk with the hearers afterwards <laughs> and see what they took away from it, for one thing, it's like I'm just amazed at how they missed the point. <laughs> didn't you? You yes. didn't. You didn't see how beautifully I put this. Um, what they don't remember really strikes me a lot. And then sometimes they run with ideas, and because, because, and I think we talked about this last time with Dorothy Sayers and the power of the word. Um, all words, especially the um, the most, pre are pregnant, and and the more, the more important the word is, the more pregnant it is with meaning. 
as the lecturer, you have control of the meaning and you know what are what connotations you want to come from that or which of the possible equivocation, equivocal senses you want to focus on here. But the, the hearer generally doesn't have that awareness of the, the ways in which those words can be taken. And so if I don't hear, and this is this is simply true for I think every teacher, if you don't hear or read the student representing the ideas in their own words so that you can so that you can question them, then you don't really know if you succeeded as a teacher. Excellent. You know, and what you've just said, uh, I think is a natural segue to Socrates' response to these charges. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned before, he, he, he refuses to make an image of, of Mino himself. And that is a, a topic of discussion uh, unto itself. And after refusing to make an image, though, he says, at ADC, it is while I myself, Socrates speaking, it is while I myself more than anyone am perplexed that I make others perplexed. And so I think one of the things that's important for us to see here is that a great teacher is himself always a student, always a questioner, and always willing and to the extent possible able to examine those things, mm -hmm. right? I think there's a great temptation to cover over, to kind of plaster over our own ignorances, yeah. right? Especially when you're thinking about the, we talked earlier about the, the, the long labor it is to grow into wisdom. And almost all of us as teachers are somewhere in that journey. And so though we're presenting what we are grasping at this moment, we ought, we ought also always to be aware of what our uncertainties about the very thing we're saying are and how, yes, we have this whole connected body of thought, but that's based in some principle that we know is challenged in a lot of ways that we haven't seen the way through yet to, to I don't know, to a deeper understanding. Exactly. Yeah. There's no shortcut, no. right? And if we give the impression to our students that there is such a shortcut, we don't let them know the limitations of the lines of reasoning that we're following. We do them a great disservice. And in mm -hmm. fact, we can turn them into missilogs, right? Haters of reason, yeah. because it, it seems then like, well, you can argue this, you can argue that, you can argue whatever, mm -hmm. right? So why, why even do this? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's pretty key. Right after Socrates says, I myself am perplexed, uh, the next move that he makes uh, in ADD is uh, to exhort Mino, I am willing to look with you and seek together for whatever it, namely virtue, is. And that strikes me as the attitude of a, a great teacher, that is one who comes alongside the student and seeks together with them. So it's important that we see the, if you will, the drama of what Socrates does here. Mm -hmm. That is that, yes, he's been charged with being a torpedo fish. He says, I'm also uh, perplexed myself, but why don't we go together? Why don't we make progress together? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's far less intimidating. Uh, and it's far more inviting. It encourages mm -hmm. a student as opposed to creating an artificial distance. Now, yeah. And there, to be sure, there are distances between teacher and student obviously, but we can create distances that are not real yeah. <laughs> and, and in a certain way, artificial. So um, this is uh, very interesting. I want to um, ask the question 
do what do you think of Socrates? Is he being disingenuous here? And um, I, I wonder that, in per, maybe put it this way particularly, um, if you're encouraged, you're, you're, question, you're always questioning the students and drawing out what's what they're thinking. Are you are you masking yourself? Um, is uh, is Socrates wearing a mask here in front of Mina? What what do you think about that? And you know, right. there's a lot to be thought about in terms of the whole uh, all the dialogues and trying to gather. But I think it's an important question. It is an important question, especially because readers uh, of the dialogues and scholars have raised that as an interpretive uh, way of approaching Socrates. Mm -hmm. uh, how does he teach? Well, he's he's hiding. He's hiding behind a mask and and so forth. Um, I think that's uh, inadequate, uh, and here's why. Uh, frequently, Socrates is presented as knowing nothing, and there are a couple of passages where he says as much, mm -hmm. right? And that's fair enough. But we need to be careful not to quote him out of context, because throughout the dialogues, there are many things that, given the arguments he's making, it's pretty clear that he thinks that he knows something. And then the question is, how do we get from what we do know, what we do hold with some measure of conviction, to what we don't know? And he always wants to bring us back to that, that point, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I don't think uh, here or elsewhere it's, uh, it's really disingenuous. Instead, it's looking back to the foundations and um, presenting an opportunity not only for the student, but for himself as a leader to, to re-examine these things. Yeah. Um, let me push that a little bit and connect it with the, um, with the idea of the invitation to philosophical friendship that you, that you yes. brought up. Um, yes. There's, um, I think that Socrates is, he really wants collaborators <laughs> yes. uh, because he know even though he's thought through so many things and so he's ahead of the game with anybody who's on the playing field with him right. yet he also knows that he 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 doesn't the deeper he's gone the more he realizes on fundamental things he doesn't mm -hmm. uh, he, he senses his own ignorance um he wants fellow laborers in that. He wants friends who will be discussing it honestly with him. And so almost all these dialogues are invitations mm -hmm. to, will you come along with me? And um, in, that, in that friendship, I think he realizes, like you said, he, to say too much, to share too much of his mind at the beginning would be to, um, I think, cut off really that possibility of friendship, either because of reactions against what he's saying, um, and so it becomes a fight, <laughs> or, um, or because of the, the, uh, the younger one or the less formed one just becoming overwhelmed by right. what he's seen, and so not being able to, to draw, to look inwardly enough to become a real friend. That's so right. I think that, that that's something you see a little bit here in Mino. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you see it more seriously with people like Gorgias. And to me, even Alcibiades, I, th right. I think that I think that's, if Socrates had a dream, it was that Alcibiades would live with him, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that they live the philosophical life with him. Yeah. Yeah. To pick up on that theme, uh, it's an exhortation to philosophy. And philosophy for Socrates is... It's a way of life. It's a way of uh, a mode of being that is is constantly seeking the truth. 
Uh, and, and that's a perilous journey. And Socrates is trying to walk a very uh, kind of middle position, a delicate balance between um, truly and earnestly questioning and nevertheless not losing heart, always seeking the truth and, and having a deep confidence that it can be found. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if some of these basic questions I, I don't have go-to answers on, right? And and that that seems to be the way one teaches philosophy. Mm-hmm. You, you might think, well, well, teaching philosophy, how do you do that? Okay, well, you, you just have a class and you lay these concepts out and that's the way it goes. No, not for Socrates at least and for Plato by extension. It's, it's a matter of teaching someone a certain way of comporting themselves to cosmos to fellow mm-hmm. creatures and and entering into a kind of life mm-hmm. philosophical friendship as yeah. we mentioned it and I, I don't know you've i'm sure you've had this experience of um of that wonderful transition and development when students do become friends in, in the pursuit of wisdom with you um i think that as a um, as i got older as a as a tutor um i realized that that's that's what i was looking for could i tell when when my students were at a point where if I started to lay out a position, they would have no qualms about saying, no, that doesn't make sense to me. No, I don't think that's right because of this. That One of the advantages of not sharing my opinion is that I get to listen to them, some very intelligent, eager students, bring out a ton of ideas and I notice things that I haven't noticed or I've forgotten. And so for me, the the um, provoking them to thought and then hearing it is a tremendous learning experience um, that, that I really treasure and have valued and have, have grown from. Um, and then and then when it becomes a point where we can just engage in, in discussion more as equals, that's that's a great, a great moment. Um, and when I can more open up, I think. Yeah, and that sounds right. Uh, Let's continue on. So Socrates has extended this offer of pursuing the truth together, philosophical friendship. Uh, And I think it's important for us to see the way Mino responds. Uh, This has in the literature come to be called Mino's paradox. Andrew, would you mind reading that for us? Sure. Uh, (laughs) What does Mino do with this invitation? Yeah, so this is at ADD. Uh, And in what way will you seek Socrates? For that which you know nothing at all about what it is. What sort of thing among those things which you do not know are you proposing to seek for yourself? Or even if, at best, you should happen upon it, how will you know it is that which you did not know? That's kind of complicated. It it is complicated. And I would argue that it's not clear maybe in Mino's own mind and the the syntax and the sentences are just very odd. Socrates' response, I think, is quite telling here. He doesn't immediately come out and respond. The first thing that he does is is restate the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would argue that he does so in a way that's clearer than, than what Mino had just said. Uh, following upon uh, right where you were reading, this is at 80E, Socrates says to Mino, I understand the sort of thing you want to say, Mino. Do you not see how inclined to strife this argument you are drawing out is, that it is not possible for a human being to seek either what he knows or what he does not know, 
for he would not seek for what he knows because he knows it. And then there's no need of any seeking for this sort of thing for this person. Nor could he seek for what he does not know because then he does not know what he is seeking. It just takes that snarl uh, and and states it more clearly, right? Mm -hmm. And I I think a natural tendency for us as as human beings that want to defend our own position is to get on with replying right away. (laughs) But but Socrates doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Instead, he takes the problem in all of its kind of snarled mess and he clarifies it and arguably makes it more pressing, right? The first step is, okay, what is the problem? What, what are we talking about here? Uh, and so that's noteworthy. And the other thing that I think I'd like to talk about a bit is he said, do you see how inclined to strife the argument you are drawing out is? Do you get a sense of what he means there, Andrew? Um, How is that a suitable response? <laughs> let's see. I, Do you see uh, <laughs> some yeah. kind of strife? Um, you know, I think that uh, well, one thing that I wanted to mention earlier is that um, that Mino has come to the point where he feels like he's been numbed is because he's taking the conversation seriously, right? He's he says, "I know. I think I know what virtue is," and and so he's willing to at least for a while um, put up with that because he thinks he's got strength, right? He's drawing mm-hmm. on his strength. And but then when Socrates is showing him, no, you you don't really understand what you mean by virtue. You have because you don't even have any idea of how to um, express and understand words. Well, then Mino is going to be faced with a choice that you see so often in the dialogues. Is he going to get angry? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> is he going to call an end to this? I, right. You know, you just, you tricked me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm under a spell. I'm going to mm-hmm. walk away. Um, and so, and maybe, how is this, an, um, how is this inclined to strife? It's inclined to attacking Socrates at the root of what uh, he thinks his mission is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that 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 that's very helpful, actually. And uh, other translators put this: "Do you see what a deba- debater's yeah, argument that's what this saying, is?" Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and and again, recalling uh, former conversations, this notion of the sophists, and at least their depiction in Plato's dialogues, is as you know, people who are really out to use words to get the upper hand. Right. And in the process, they're going to have to engage in some kind of verbal battle. Right. So so the debater's argument is one where we're just constantly going to be locking horns with another and and, and uh, seeing who will come out on top. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. the purpose is I'm going to win. I'm yeah. going to be over you. Yeah. Uh, and, and Socrates doesn't like that approach at all. In fact, we already saw him invite uh, Mino to pursue the truth together. And on the tail end, right after what what I what I just read here, he issues the invitation again to Mino. I am willing to look with you and seek together for whatever it is. He is he's just said that, but in between was the paradox, and this is I think the ongoing temptation for any truth seeker. Will you allow the difficulty of the task, um, the the way in which pursuing the truth can be disorienting, will you allow that to bring you to a complete halt? Yeah. Right. Uh, and and kind of become intellectually lazy mm-hmm. and morally lazy. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and just say, no, I'm, I'm satisfied. I, 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 this is hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just, I'll stay put. Uh, but Socrates isn't, isn't happy with that. Right. 
Um, and I think that as you're personally engaging in the life of learning and you want to find um, your friends who are going to engage with you in this life and help you along, um, I think you need to sort out when you have disagreement that's that that's compatible with the friendship because you do have a common love of truth and you are trying to understand one another from the person with whom, no, they just want to fight. That's right. <laughs> and they, they want an intellectual fight. They want, um, and they want to win it. Um, and the Protagoras is such an yes. amazing dialogue for some of the things that Socrates says there about, I, I don't want you just to put on a position. I want you to put yourself on the line in this conversation, even though we might disagree intensely. I think that's amazing. Yes. Yeah. That reminded me of something else in the, in the dialogues, which is uh, Socrates frequently, and then he does this with Protagoras. He asks, is this your position? Yeah. Do you believe that this is true? <laughs> And, and frequently the interlocutor will respond, well, why does that matter? In, yeah. in a certain sense, why does it matter, right? But for Socrates, if we're not really after truth, if we're just kind of fabricating arguments and we're just having a kind of wordplay here mm -hmm. and, and, and battle of words, um, we need to get serious about this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we want to try to leave you with a re resource to help you with this. Um, and we're going to recommend this time Jeff Lehman's own Socratic Conversations uh, uh, book recently published. Want to just tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Yeah. So the book tries to uh, set out uh, Socratic Conversation today in its broader context. So uh, there are three segments or portions of the book. The first one looks at several dialogues of Plato, beginning with the Mino. There's a chapter on the Mino and then a few others. And we see the beginning of philosophical dialogue and the pursuit of truth through Socratic conversation in Plato. Then in the middle of the book, we take other dialogues, philosophical dialogues throughout the tradition, and we see how philosophical dialogue and the pursuit of truth is influenced by things like the coming of the Christian faith, for instance. To so look at Augustine's dialogue. Augustine yeah. and Boethius mm -hmm. and so forth. We uh, end up with Thomas More. Uh, and then the third part looks at Socratic conversation today in light of that history and in light of those texts. Okay. So, yeah. Have Great. a look. And I hope you enjoy it. That's from Classical <laughs> Academic Press, which also has a, so many fine offerings in its, uh, particularly in its Master Teachers series. Right? Yes, yeah. that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um, okay, and then we have a few minutes to talk about what's on our mind. You've got something you want to yeah. bring up, Jeff? Uh, I'd like to hear what you have. Okay, all right. Okay. So <laughs> I was hoping you would actually. No. And it's very connected with this podcast and the last podcast, which was my um, uh, enjoyment at being able to participate in the Center for Thomas More Studies uh, annual conference gathering of fellows. Um, I was so impressed with that in, in, in so many ways as a learning experience and as a fellowship, a, f a real um, model of this kind of friendship in the, in the pursuit of wisdom uh, the, that's built up over the past 20 years. That was very evident to me as a, as a guest. Um, but also, uh, in a particular way, I became very impressed with Thomas More as um, an example of, of a leading layman political political leader, uh, leader of thought and culture, a man of friendship, and how that came out of, or at least it was all enhanced by his liberal arts training. Um, and one of the sessions I was most impressed with was um, uh, Arts of Liberty senior fellow Eric Ellis. He uh, made a presentation of some of Thomas More's epigrams, um, a series uh, in of uh, six epigrams, which were for, for more, they were Latin, written in Latin, 
but he was f first sort of translating, transposing a Greek epigram, and then and then adapting it in this series of six different efforts. Um, and Eric was showing us how he was using techniques that were very common. You know, sort of ev everybody who was trained in the trivium would know about these techniques and would be trained in the amplification, um, for instance, uh, and how that how that would go about. Uh, and then how more not only used those rhetorical and grammatical techniques in his different efforts, but also um, changed the focus, sort of the whole the whole theme of the epigram. The epigram is originally just a two-line poem. Um, and he went through uh, uh, longer versions that were maybe 12 or 14 lines. But he would change the whole orientation to maybe a religious orientation or orientation that focused on friendship, and then ends up with his own two-line epigram, which is um, which shares his political concerns and the political lesson he drew out of the short story. So um, I was so so impressed with that um, as being an example of what happens when you really can come to master words and put them in the service of of expressing your 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 thoughts and, and your concerns. So, Excellent. So, well, I think that's a good place good, for us to yeah, end. Okay. Uh, thank you again, and thank you for listening. All right. God bless. Resources mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at artsofliberty.udallas.edu slash podcasts. We invite you to share questions, comments, requests, and challenges via our email address, artsofliberty at udallas.edu. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. These podcasts are made possible by funding from generous benefactors like you.